All right, friends. This is episode 575 of the Juicebox Podcast. Bob comes to us today from Manchester, England. He has type 1 diabetes and he has children with type 1 diabetes. He's an absolute delight to speak to, and I think you're going to really enjoy this. I have nothing else to say about that. So, you know, settle in and soak up Bob. Please remember while you're listening that nothing you hear on the Juice Box podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Please always consult a physician before making any changes to your healthcare plan or becoming bold with insulin. For those of you who are worried right now that I'm going to do a ton of bad British accents and things like that, I, I don't even do it once. Never. That was it. I'm just, I shied away from it. I'm embarrassed. But I didn't try. If you're a U.S. resident who has type 1 diabetes or a U.S. resident who is the caregiver of someone with type 1, please consider going to t1dexchange.org forward slash juice box and taking the brief survey that will help people with type 1 diabetes and support the show. t1dexchange.org forward slash juice box. This show is sponsored today by the glucagon that my daughter carries, Gvoke Hypopen. Find out more at gvokeglucagon.com forward slash juice box. The podcast is also sponsored by Touched by Type 1. You can learn more about them at touchedbytype1.org, also on Facebook and Instagram. I think I mentioned in my email, I used to do um, a podcast for um, like a board game I used to play, uh, X-Wing, the little Star Wars spaceships. Yeah. And, and that's that's really popular. You know, they're getting they're still doing the show and it's getting about a thousand listeners a week, something like that. Okay. So that's pretty good. That's and um, it was, it, but it was just such effort. I mean, when we started, the idea was we'd do a number of short shows every week, sort of 15, 20 minutes. But there was just too much to talk about. And particularly when I was on, I can go on and on. Um, so it, it just got a bit out of hand. Um, and then I'm, I'm not playing so much anymore. So um, I'll let the other guys take over with that. Um, but uh, yeah, I kind of miss it. Um, I, and I, but I do like listening to myself, which is quite a vice. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a uh, mental illness. <laughs> no, no, I don't actually... I'll listen once in a while to make sure, like, I'll pop open different players and different apps to just see that the show's sounding the same over different platforms. And, you know, sometimes you'll throw it on in the car through headsets just to listen. To My daughter's like, are you listening to your own podcast? I'm like, no, I'm just checking the audio. And then I'll, like, laugh, and she'll go, just laugh at yourself. And I went, no, no, I don't think so. <laughs> so I, I, I did used to catch myself. Sometimes I'd, I'd listen, you know, a couple of weeks after it came out, and I'd be like, actually, that's a really good gag. Well done. Well done. You're funny. <laughs> yeah, you, you know it's possible you do have a problem when you're like, oh, that guy's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You. Absolutely. I just think that uh, anyone who does it for a long time – and it and it doesn't generate money. That's a passion because it takes so much time. Like I don't. I mean, honestly, at the rate that I put podcasts out, if it didn't have advertisers, I just couldn't do this. Like I, oh, would, yeah, yeah. you know, I yeah. wouldn't be able to. And people who do, I'm. I know that a lot of people in the internet like age are are trying to make businesses in places that maybe people don't see businesses all the time. And it's amazing, but that's a ton of effort, especially to get to the end and find out that, 
you had a lot of fun, but it didn't it didn't catch on with enough people for it to become like a viable thing that you could keep doing. It's just it's a ton of work. So yeah, and I think with you, the advertisers are are pretty cool. Um, I mean, it is very directly because of because of Juicebox that I got an Omnipod. Is it? Um, and and yeah, absolutely, absolutely, hundred oh, wow. percent. And I got um, a Contour Next as well as a result, and all that sort of stuff. Because you hear about these products, and luckily, I trust you because um, I listen to what you say. I do the things you tell me to do, and it kind of works. It doesn't work stunningly, but it works a hell of a lot better than it was doing before. I mean, I'm not one of those flat line guys. Right. Um, I still I still bump around quite a bit, but then I, I have a really varied diet, so that doesn't help. Um, and I'm you know I'm pretty happy with where I am. I'm at sort of six point one. Uh, with the A1C, which is is much better than it was even two or three years ago. Right. Um, but it's the tech. The tech's amazing. Yeah, no kidding. Um, well, do do me this favor because I liked what you just said and I want to leave it in. So introduce yourself very quickly. Okay. Hi, I'm Bob D. I live in Manchester in the UK, and I was diagnosed with type one diabetes all the way back in 1985. 85. Wow. How old, yeah, how, old it's been were a you? how old were you in 85? Uh, I was 13. 13. But it was shortly before my birthday, before we do the maths. Oh, so you and I are almost the exact same age then. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much, yeah. No kidding. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Uh, you know, it's funny because you were just talking about, you know, finding, you know, technology and things are better, but they're not, you know, super flat all the time. But you come from a time where just the expectations were so much different, right? Like it, oh, it, yeah. yeah. Um, it was when I was diagnosed, the, the regime was human I and human S uh, mixed together. And they were both good for about 12 hours. Although nobody suggested that I should take them 12 hours apart. That might've helped. <laughs> and the, the diet was 50 grams of carb for breakfast, 20 grams in the middle of the morning, 50 grams of carb for lunch, 10 grams in the middle of the afternoon, 50 grams in the evening and 20 grams before bed. And that was every day. And I was, I was 13 when I was diagnosed and, and we stuck to that for maybe two or three years. Um, and then I was a sort of, I was a teenage, um, I got into going out and, and having fun and misbehaving. And I discovered that I could sort of skip the snacks and not hypo. And that was okay. Um, and then my dosing adjustment, because I hated doing finger pricks, absolutely hated finger pricks. And in fact, when I was diagnosed, we weren't sent home, sent home with a finger prick kit. Hmm. Uh, we were, we were sent home with urine tests. And the idea was I'd do one of those every day, but they're just basically meaningless. Yeah. Um, so I, I had no real idea of what was going on. And then HbA1c checks came in after a while, and I got a, a finger stick set after a bit. And the doctor's advice was maybe try and do one every day uh, just to see where you are. Hmm. And and it was it, my numbers actually weren't weren't awful. I think the first time I had an HbA1c done, I was something around um, probably about an eight. Okay. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't completely out of control. Um, at the school I was at, there was a lot of exercise. Exercise was every single day, um, seven days a week. So that probably helped okay. quite a lot. But the only dietary change was don't eat sugar in anything. Any product with with granulated sugar in, you just don't do. It doesn't matter whether it's it's chocolate cake with a load of cream um, or uh, jelly babies, which are basically pure sugar. Just don't have any white sugar products at all, ever, um, unless you're low, at which point you can have a dextrose tablet. How long and that was, that was the regime. And you did that for years? 
uh, years and years. I mean, as I say, I didn't stick to the diet so much. And I got to university um, when I was 18, 1990. And then I had about 10 years where I knew that I should change doses, but the doctors weren't particularly useful on, on suggesting changes. And at that stage, you know, I was okay. I felt good. Uh, the HbA1cs I had were, by the standards of those times, okay. So I didn't uh, go every every six months or even every year to see a doctor. Um, I'd, I'd skip them. I was moving around quite a lot with university. I studied at Oxford and then I had two years in London before coming up to Manchester. So what I did was I would just up my dose every now and again until I found I was quite regularly hypo. Um, which isn't it isn't smart really with hindsight. Well, I'm you know what it it makes me wonder. So if we if we took the step of defining type one diabetes by its management and not the not the actual impact on your body or that kind of stuff, if we just defined a disease by its management, you have a completely different diabetes today than you did then. These are these two oh, things. My, don't, yeah, they don't recognize each other at all. It's it's been um, kind of a step change. I moved in. It was only probably about 2010 that I moved to uh, Lantisclargine and Nova Rapid, mm-hmm. um, the traditional sort of modern basal bolus technique, and that that did help. But the problem again with that was they wouldn't tell me what doses to use, and they just sort of said, "Well, see how you get on. See see what works. Do plenty of finger sticks." And um, I'd always been very much don't talk about diabetes i am not disabled i don't have a disability i can do anything and you know i I did um my wife and i would travel all over the world um i did bungee jumps in in new zealand i flew from manchester to las vegas for 48 hour weekends where i didn't sleep i did when i got on the plane um i i had a generally sort of um crazy time for my young adult life until yeah, 2010, they, they sent me home with the, the new regime, uh, basal bolus, and said, see how you get along. And there wasn't really even a broad idea. I didn't know whether I was taking 40 units of, of basal or 20. So I just sort of experimented a bit and, and worked it out. And at that stage, I was still having some pretty catastrophic hypos. Um, they they now happily are a thing of the past. But um, over time, I've, I've been hospitalised a few times um and my wife still talks of of the time when um you know ambulance guys would come out and i don't think of myself as a particularly sort of big or strong guy but it would it would take two guys to hold me down while they got some glucagon in me hmm. um because i'd be thrashing about so vigorously yeah and it's it's I, one thing was i i never learned to be particularly terrified of hypos in the way that, that some people seem to be um you know, dead in bed was not a phrase I heard when I was introduced to diabetes. And it, it wasn't a phrase I heard until the last five or six years. I understood they could be lethal, but they happened quite a bit and I seemed to get over it. And that was that was OK. I mean, it's obviously a very bad idea, Yeah. but it was. Yeah, um, it, the, the management just wasn't great. No, that's fascinating because you live through a tectonic shift in the way insulin worked. And so many people have that I've spoken to. But, I mean, you really were, you know, I, I sort of put it the same way every time. But they basically gave you some insulin and then told you, eat on a schedule, eat about these many carbs. And if your A1Cs were in the eights, then that makes, I mean, let's look for a second. I'm going to pull up this thing real quickly. 
never really thought about it like this before. But if your A1Cs were in the eights, then your average blood sugar was like 183 most. Of the, that was an average or 10.2 for people uh, living yeah. outside the States. So that's your average blood sugar. And you have no real idea if you're achieving an 8A1C because you're 50 for most of the time and 400 most of the time. The variability was never even, I mean, you couldn't measure it. So there'd be no way to track no. it. I mean, I, I did know at that stage that you didn't want your HbA1c to be too low because that would suggest that you're having too many hypos. And I mean, there are still some dinosaur doctors around who who say that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, because if in those days, because you couldn't really measure time in range or the level of fluctuation, the, the only way you were getting an HbA1c low was by spending a lot of time too low. Yeah. And then you'd bounce back up high. And and so it was actually discouraged to be too low. I think I had a something like a the equivalent of about 7.5. Um, and the doctor was like, well, you don't want to go a lot lower than that. You know, you'll be hypoing a lot if you do. And that I mean, it was just a different time. Yeah. And I think what people don't get now is 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 how how really difficult it used to be. I mean, I am. I always sort of thought that I probably won't die with diabetes and the stuff that they're doing with the drugs now is, is pretty incredible, but it's more, I'm, I'm actually in, in a really good place with it because of the technology yeah. compared to how things were really up to about, well, really till my, my daughter was, was diagnosed herself um, in about 2015. Right. Is that what, <clears throat> so you weren't, you weren't even using like faster acting insulins until until that time, right? Were- uh, it was, I'd, I'd got onto Nova Rapid maybe, I don't know exactly when it was. I think it was about 2010, 2011. Um, and I remember I, I go to Glastonbury Music Festival uh, most years. And that's like a, a huge three square mile site with 300,000 people on it. And it's all complete mayhem. Um, and it's uh, it's one of the few music festivals where it's just like a single site where all the camping is enclosed with the the stages, mm-hmm. and there's like ninety stages. And I remember being there in probably 2007, and I'd gone out for like a, an early morning walk and left my insulin at the tent. And I remember thinking, I've got needles on me, but I don't have my vials of insulin. If somebody stops me at a music festival for whatever reason and and finds I've got needles on me without any insulin to go no that's the reason that's the reason i'm going to have a very uncomfortable day and i remember the the rain started and it was like really quite dangerous there was lightning coming down and all sorts of stuff and they closed off parts of the site and i was stuck away from my insulin and there was just no flexibility in the regime at all so the potential for that being a problem was was really serious whereas with a bolus basal well yeah okay you've had you you've had your um basal but Take your bolus when you get around to having some breakfast. It's fine, and and so yeah, that was that was two thousand and seven, I think. So it was only after that that I got into the the faster acting stuff. But still, I was very much I can do anything. Don't talk to me about diabetes. It's my problem. I'll manage it. I don't want to discuss it with anybody. Um, I had by that stage a brilliant uh, diabetes specialist nurse at my uh, local practice and my local GP practice. And she sort of said some things to me like, well, you know, we can change this insulin. So I did. And that seemed to be better. Maybe you should get some education. Maybe you should just, you know, find out a little bit more about it. And it's like, well, no, that's time off work. I don't want to do that. And, and I'm fine. Look at my HbA1Cs. They're, they're actually OK. Because I was still living in a world where 
and eight was was really pretty good. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that that when you really look, like now from this distance away, that even at that time, it's not as if I wonder. I wonder. I'm trying to think of how I want to say this. It's not as if there was this rock solid way to manage diabetes in 1985, and doctors were like, "Here it is. This is the best thing we understand." And it works. It was just the best thing they understood. And I don't even know how well they understood it because if they understood it that well, when they handed you Novo Rapid later, there would have been a lot of trepidation. They would have said, hey, this insulin doesn't work anything like the insulins you've used prior. This is going to be a dangerous situation. We really need to figure out what this, but they were just like, here it is. Now you figure that out. Yeah. 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 That's exactly how it was. Um, and it, it was, a little bit scary. Uh, I remember the first couple of days I was traveling to Liverpool to do some work and I was on the train and thought, I do not feel good. I really don't feel good. Um, and I remember cramming sugar in before arriving at the, the meeting, whatever it was I was going to. And it, it was quite scary making the switch because I thought I was doing okay. I thought I'd solved diabetes. I'd solved my relationship with diabetes um, back in 1985. And, and, you know, it, it was as good as it was going to get. So just deal with it. And I, I didn't really pay a lot of attention to it. Um, and I think with hindsight, I now feel really lucky that something quite serious didn't happen to me. Yeah. I mean, I go and do my kidney checks and my, my eye checks and stuff because I am, I remain terrified of protecting my sight. Well, you the, know, my sight is super important. Of course. And, but, but besides the long-term things that you're worried about, I, I find that, that that transfer from those older insulins to the newer insulins, there are an entire generation of people living with type 1 diabetes that live through that who are all lucky to still be standing because of the lack of training they were given about how to use a new insulin. And I'm saying that I don't think that many doctors knew the chasm that stood between regular and MPH and you know, a faster acting Novolog or Nova Rapid or something like that, that these were, th these were two, basically two different drugs just because they're both insulin didn't make their function even very similar. I mean, before you were just putting in a bunch, you were basically throwing on a, a heavy weight of insulin on top of you and then just eating at certain times to prop it up. But now they're giving you insulin that works quickly and draws your blood sugar down really fast. And your your regular MPH didn't do that. That was that was no. never how they worked. And it's just it's. I mean, it would be like if I gave you I don't know like a, a a big pill bottle full of heart medication, and I said to you, Bob, I don't know how many of these you're supposed to take. You go ahead and figure that out yourself. <laughs> just yeah, you yeah, know. yeah. That's 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 pretty much exactly what they said. Yeah, um, because they didn't know. And well, CGM wasn't remotely a thing at that stage, so right. you could either do finger pricks every half hour forget that um or you could wait until cgm came along and and try and understand diabetes right well i, I think it's and, and, I'm, I'm sorry i think it's important for people to hear because there is a difference between the machine that is healthcare and you and your personal story so they're not the same thing you know the world is moving forward it, insulin's become faster uh, pumps work differently. You know, we keep moving forward. You have to keep up with that yourself personally, because no one really 
has the time or the wherewithal to go back to every person who learned before's way and re-educate them. You, it was difficult enough to educate oh. you the first time. So it is a very personal thing that you need to do is to pay attention to the fact that what the machine is doing, what the world is doing, and what you're doing, uh, the goals are not aligned normally. Dancing for Diabetes from Touched by Type 1 is approaching very quickly. It's happening on November 13th. Have you gotten your tickets yet? Have you? Touchedbytype1.org. Then you click on Programs. And then you click on Dancing for Diabetes. When you get there, you'll see this. That the 21st Annual Dancing for Diabetes Showcase features award-winning dancers raising funds to support those touched by Type 1 diabetes. It's happening on November 13th at 7 p.m., at the Dr. Phillips Center for the Performing Arts, and tickets begin at $15. Are you local? Head over there and click on Get Your Tickets. When you do that, you'll be able to get your tickets. November 13th, Walt Disney Theater, Touched by Type 1. You'll see all that right there. You make the clicky-clicky, you buy your tickets, you head off and have a great time watching the show. TouchedbyType1.org. There won't be one thing better to do in Central Florida on November 13th. I can promise you that. Givoke Hypopen has no visible needle and is the first pre-mixed auto-injector of glucagon for very low blood sugar in adults and kids with diabetes, ages 2 and above. Not only is Givoke Hypopen simple to administer, but it's simple to learn more about. All you have to do is go to givokeglucagon.com forward slash juice box. Givoke shouldn't be used in patients with insulinoma or pheochromocytoma. Visit Glucagon. Dot com slash risk. I mean, in practical terms, it's it's considerably easier to do that now because we have an internet. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's it's really easy to reach out and speak to people and, and meet people like me which was, was just impossible um, 10, 15, 20 years ago. I mean, I remember going to university and there was uh, second year, there was a lass who was a, a first year student. She said, oh, I gather that you and I have something in common. And she said, oh, well, I've, I've got diabetes too. And I was like, look, I've never had a conversation with somebody else with diabetes. That's not, that's not part of my life. I like to share with anybody else. Just And I never spoke to that girl again. And looking back on it, I think you absolutely, had you know what a foul thing to do to any other human being and mm. um, she was reaching out and, and trying probably the first person that that she'd ever met who had type one and there she was new university 200 miles from home and and trying to reach out and make friends and i just thrust it away from myself because i just thought, i'm not, not going anywhere near this wow. um yeah. i i do my injections i eat my food and everybody else can can forget about it it's not their problem and and it was it, that is part of the problem with with education and the way that medicine's moving forward really quickly, and people aren't receiving education at the same pace as scientific developments are moving forward. And, and that's a real shame. I mean, there's so many people who, who are struggling, and, and I just think that's just not necessary. You don't need to do that anymore. Yeah. You know, well, you you learn to, a little and get the meds. You have to have the energy and the information and the confidence, and there's just a lot you have to have before you start. And it's 
it's difficult to collect up all those tools when you don't even know what half of them are supposed to be. And you're already struggling. Like, I mean, I'm obviously you, you felt badly enough about it, but I'm thinking about that girl. Like you might've been like to her, you might've been a lifeline to her and you guys are just in two different places. And she's, you know, gosh, you think like maybe it was hard for her to say that to you. And then, you know, it does make you wonder. And it not, I'm not talking about you personally. I'm talking about everybody in general. If everybody feels that way and there's no one to reach to and and how do you find these people? Like you said, prior to the Internet, there's no one out there. You can't you can't make yeah. those kind of connections. Well, I, I think it would be interesting to know from you if you have perspective on it, because you lived for so long the way you did. And then you had a a long transition through faster acting insulin before you got to see data that helped you understand it. Are you fundamentally, are you fundamentally a different human being today than you were then because of insulin? Yeah, I I think, well, for me, the, the big step on the journey was when my daughter was diagnosed when she was uh, 13 years old, Mm. uh, about five years ago. And I, uh, we were, uh, we'd been away, I think, and, my, and the kids had been staying with my mum and dad. And we we got there, and my mum said, "Look, she's drinking an awful lot of water, and I think you probably want to test her blood." And I got the because at that stage still finger sticks, got the finger sticks set uh, set out, and she was twenty something. And uh, we drove her to our local hospital, about an hour away from my mum and dad's, and there was quite a lot of tears in the car on the way home. And we knew then that she was was joining me in, in the tribe. And um, my wife was was quite upset about it, um, partly because I'd had such a, uh, not a bad attitude, but I'd been so private about it. It just wasn't something I wanted to be discussed. Um, and my wife and I very rarely spoke about diabetes, even after something quite dramatic dramatic had happened, like, like the, the paramedics turning up. And and I would just get really angry about any discussion of it. And we walked into that hospital and she was diagnosed. And I just sat there thinking, well, I know all this stuff that they're about to tell her. Um, I I know what I'm doing with with this basal bolus business. And I sat there and listened to the education that she was getting, which was was really pretty good for a newly diagnosed. And after an hour or two, I I started listening and I realised that in the, whatever it was, 30 years since my diagnosis, Actually, the doctors have been doing quite a lot of work yeah. and, and they'd learned quite a lot of stuff. And, and it was stuff that I really needed to, to find out more about. And, and that really changed me as a person. It wasn't so much that the insulins had changed because I was still walking around in the dark without being properly educated. And her diagnosis really changed how I felt about diabetes because I knew that it was going to be a part of her. It was going to be whether she liked it or not, as integral to her as her eye colour or how tall she is. And wishing that she was taller or shorter uh, or fat, fatter or, or thinner or that she had different coloured eyes is, is just wishing. You know, she's not going to grow any, any taller and she's not going to be any less tight one. And, and at that point, I, I stopped ignoring it because with a, a 13-year-old, it was impossible to ignore and I started to kind of think, well, I can either hate this or I can get with it and, and do well at it, not just for her to, to make sure that her numbers are as good as they can be, but also for me. And I uh, went in for another meet with my fantastic specialist nurse and 
she said, well, you should do this training course. And they have um, a four-day training course they do locally. And it's a single day over about four weeks. And I went in and sat down in a room. And it was the first time I had shared my life with diabetes with anybody else. And it was it was a slightly odd experience because I was the only bloke there. And there were 10 people in the room. And this was for quite a long period. And I was the only guy in the room with predominantly middle-aged women, some, some a little younger, for four days, just talking through diabetes. And I think maybe because it was it was predominantly women, there was more discussion of feelings about diabetes with the education. And it just opened my, my mind completely to the fact that I've kind of been hiding from it for, for 30 years. I, I haven't really got to grips with, with who I was. Um, I've had quite long periods of pretty bad depression uh after the millennium and i and they were you know reasonably serious i i knew what time the last train from london uh passed the the railway station which was a mile away from my house just in case i ever decided to go and stand in front of it you know i'd given real thought to i can't cope with life and really i i hadn't analyzed it in that way but in fact i couldn't wasn't dealing with my diabetes i wasn't embracing it i wasn't getting on board with it I felt that I wasn't in charge of my own body. Stuff would happen that I couldn't predict that might well kill me before too long. And I, I was really struggling to deal with it. But then when my daughter was diagnosed, uh, she sort of opened the door for me to start. Liking is probably the one word, wrong word, but certainly accepting diabetes into my life. And it's almost a religious thing for me. Did you, um, did you but, do it? Did you do it for yourself or did you do it for her? Or do you not think about it that way? Um, sorry, say again, Scott. I, I'm wondering if it felt like you were doing it for yourself or doing it for her. I mean, do you, do, uh, you, do you look at her being diagnosed and think, oh, well, this is going to be her life. She's going to hide a part of herself, pass out a lot and be depressed. Like, did you look at her and feel like, like your experience was going to end up being hers if you didn't do something? To an extent, I think that probably puts it a bit higher than than how I felt because yeah all right diabetes is a massive pain but I've, I've had a fantastic life I mean I talk about the depression and and that was just so illogical you know I have a, a job that is reasonably high status reasonably high income um, it's fairly interesting most of the time um, I live in a, a lovely part of the world um, there's a load of pubs within three minutes walk from me which suits me down to the ground uh, my wife is great we have a, a great relationship and I had nothing to be unhappy about, and yet I still had this depression. And and looking to to her when she was diagnosed, it was I didn't really see all the problems that I'd had as massive problems because you know you you uh, play the the hand that you dealt, you just get on with stuff. Yeah. And and I certainly wasn't wasn't miserable about it. I just distanced myself from it and looked at it as a an administrative chore rather than a medical trauma. Yeah. Um, even though we were having paramedics around at three o'clock in the morning, that's um, why you. And it's kind of weird. Yeah, that's why you couldn't talk to the girl at school because you didn't have any real feelings about it. You were just—it was all nuts and bolts. You were just taking the steps that you were supposed to take at the right time, and then never thinking about it again. I imagine that for yeah. most of your life, most of the day, you did not consider diabetes at all. No, no, no. I would go for. I mean, it became almost an automatic process where you're having this many units in the evening, this many units in the morning. Try and make sure you remember to have lunch, otherwise you you might go low. And 
it became a very sort of automatic process, and and it was something I I, I found very very difficult to talk about with anybody. Um, but when when Isabel joined me in the tribe, she it was very difficult to loathe it anymore. Um, she is an amazing girl, and it's very difficult to to dislike any any part of her. Um, she's a phenomenal young woman, and I'm extraordinarily proud of her. Like like every parent, I guess. Yeah. Of their kids, and um, and if she has diabetes, then I'll be extraordinarily proud of, of everything she does with her diabetes. So if it you, doesn't make her smaller, it makes her bigger. It doesn't make her weaker; it makes her stronger. Right. So, it, it, tangibly speaking, if you ignore your own diabetes or you allow yourself to treat it like it's not a part of you, then you can't treat your daughter the way you want to treat her. You can't see yeah. you can't see her the yeah. way you want to see her and how you have seen and treated her prior to this. So that's the shift right there. Like her diabetes yeah. probably saves you from the rest of your life being segmented up like it was. Yeah, very much. Yeah. Very much. And and it was really, I think psychologically, her being diagnosed made me engage with it because I enjoyed engaging with her. I enjoy right. being part of her life, and, and it's big for me. And I couldn't take diabetes away from that. So that prompted me to go and get some, some education and, and sit in a room with people like me, many of whom had been through the same kind of experiences at, at school and through their, their 20s uh, with these older insulins. And, and we all had the same kind of common experience of of not really knowing how to deal with it and we had this education and it was it was just mind-blowing so so um, it didn't it didn't work it didn't work but it was just the ideas were fantastic and the knowledge was fundamental to to everything i'm trying to do now yeah but it did not get me to to where i wanted to be well i'll ask you about that in a second but it, but it's just fascinating that like a personal human connection is really what you lacked and it's just so, yeah. it just, it, it runs right through every part of life. I mean, it's one of those things that sounds obvious when you hear it said, but yet it troubles and, and weighs on so many people. Just isolation of any kind uh, can be so difficult. I, I'm mm. just, I'm very much reminded of the notes that I get from adults who, who want to tell me about how they've had diabetes for a long time and that the podcast has allowed them to hear people with type 1 uh, and they'd never met anybody with type one prior or something like that. Um, it's just very cool that you're, that you and your daughter got to be the beginning of your own little community. Then you branch out. So you go to this class, but the class you said as, as probably cathartic as it was for you emotionally, it wasn't that valuable management wise. Well, it, it, it wasn't because, um, the, the sea change on management is CGM. When I say CGM in the UK, Libre is, huge because right. it's it's nhs funding whereas getting dexcom funding on our, our system is really very difficult mm-hmm. um so everyone's using libre and and that really enabled me to to manage my diabetes actively but just the teaching i had at that class as to how insulins were working and as to how you could judge basal and bolus and, and get them into a better spot was was really useful and and the dietary advice about how carbohydrates worked and and how mixing carbohydrates with fats and proteins would alter the impact of those carbs was just really valuable to enable me to understand why my body was doing some of the things I didn't want it to do. I didn't really have a solution at that stage because 
um, it, it's it's bumping and nudging, and and it's very difficult to bump and nudge with finger sticks. Yeah, you but need we... to be doing an awful lot of them. Um, but the the human side of, of that class was fantastic. Um, I I made a really good friend, uh, my friend Jill, who struggled and struggled uh, with her type one, and she messaged me about two weeks ago. Uh, she was celebrating her first week of being 100% in range. And she's come a long way. I mean, she exercises a hell of a lot. She's a big dancer and she cycles. And, and that is is a good thing, but it does impact on management. Um, and she's also a very low-carb person. And, and she struggled for years and years to get her numbers under control. And she's just had this last week of 100% in range, which is is fantastic. And I think back to when we met maybe five years ago in that room, and, and how difficult she was finding stuff and how she just didn't understand how she would uh, go to bed at, at seven and wake up at 19. Yeah. I, I As you're talking, it occurs to me that I don't feel the full um, weight of the podcast. I just, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't know that I ever am going to, I guess. Um, because as you're talking, I, I feel, uh, I don't know Jill. I, I don't even know you. Um, and yeah. I, I'm so elated for her as you're telling me that story. And I, I just, it just occurred to me. I was like, I really don't, I don't know. You know, I, I, I guess unless I have diabetes one day, I'm never going to really understand. But, uh, well, I'm, I mean, I'm not a big fan of, um, you've not had this experience, so you can't comprehend what it's like. You know, if I go to the North pole, I'm taking a big coat. Yeah. I understand it's going to be cold. But I do feel that with, with type 1, maybe like other, um, I use the word carefully, but invisible disabilities, mm-hmm. um, dis- disabled does not mean less abled. Uh, it just means you have a long-term medical condition that has an impact on your life on a day-to-day basis, and that is absolutely diabetes, and the legal definition applies to us. So invisible disabilities are really hard to deal with because they are very lonely. Yeah, do you, do you, you, know- you can't reach out and, and just see people living your life. So just because I'm good at talking about how to use insulin and maybe I'm engaging or something like that, whatever, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's, um, it, it, you're making me feel, uh, don't worry, I'm not going to do this, but I would like to right now just stop making a diabetes podcast and just pick a different topic because I'm realizing that I'm wondering how much more there is about other people and other things in the world that I wish I understood. Like, I don't know what it was about how you just spoke about Jill, but I, I, um, I mean, I know I don't know, you know what I mean? Like, I know I don't have diabetes. I understand that. I think I understand it as well as anybody who doesn't have it could. Yeah. Uh, right. I'll but, give you that. Thank you. But I don't, but there's just, there's a human interaction between you and her that, that means something to the both of you that I can't fully make sense of. Um, I just don't have the perspective for, and now I'm wondering what else I don't have the perspective for in the world. I'm wondering, and, and these conversations are how you find it. Um, I just want to keep having more conversations with people and trying to figure out more about, uh, the stuff, I guess, that I don't intersect with, uh, in the normal part of my life. I just, I don't know. It was very nice what you just said, and it made me feel good. I, I might be a little unclear right now because I got thrown off a little bit emotionally. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think something that you say about the podcast episodes is that the the ones with people talking are amongst the most popular yeah and and that i think for a lot of people maybe because they are the only person that they know who has diabetes and listening to 
to all the, the hundreds of people that you've spoken with and, and listening to their stories and how they're managing and how things are and just a massive array of life experience. Right. It, yeah. it, diabetes doesn't stop anybody from doing anything. Yeah. You know, it really doesn't. But in order to make the most of, of your life with diabetes, I, I do think it's hugely helpful to to know that other people are out there, other people are going through it, other people are dealing with it. I mean, um, my wife now feels a bit lonely because she's the only person in our house without diabetes. <laughs> well, that's a good loneliness, I guess. <laughs> but, I, uh, <laughs> y- you know, it, it really is. I don't know. It just it's. I mean, you said something a second ago about that that people find the conversational episodes more. I see more people listen to those, and it's fascinating because when people are in the part where they're they're mining from for understanding about management stuff, they don't even care about those people. Don't really care so much about the conversations, which I think is a mistake because I think a lot of management stuff comes out in conversations, but yeah, but neither here nor there. So. What you see is on the Facebook page, those people are are they're voraciously trying to figure out diabetes. And if I do, if I were to go up and say, "Hey, I have an episode. I've done this before, just kind of to amuse myself." I'm like, I, I, "Tomorrow, I can put up a pro tip episode, or I can put up a conversation with a person who is, you know, and and some description of a person living with type one." Overwhelmingly, those people in that space will want the management conversation. Because that's the part they're in right now. Like it, it's fascinating that that you could live for fifteen or twenty years with no real idea of management, and now because of measurement tools, you actually have a real chance of figuring it out. And I just hope that after those people figure out that management stuff, that they don't do what you did and just see diabetes as pull lever A, throw switch B, go live life. I I think that you can't ignore the emotional part of it, you're not going to ignore it out of existence. It, it, it is going to come get you in some way, in some form. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, I also, for me, I, I like a bit of technology. I like tinkering with stuff. And I almost look at myself as a like an old car in the garage that I'm constantly working on yeah. to make it a little bit better. And it'll never be finished. I'll never drive it out of the garage. Just like I'll probably never lose the diabetes. Maybe, who knows? Um, but it's probably just going to stay in the garage and I'm always going to be out there making sure the spark plugs are working or the carburetor or whatever it is. And I like tinkering. I like learning more and getting better at diabetes. I do too. And you can. Yeah. I don't know. I do too. I love when somebody says something that makes me think like, Oh, that's a great idea. Like I look, I understand how impactful fat is in a diet, right? And how it changes carbs mm-hmm. and everything. I understand it backwards and forwards. And yet when you said it earlier, it it meant I, I I found myself like inside thinking, am I paying close enough attention to that? Like like then and just that little like spark will make me pay better attention to it moving forward. And that doesn't yeah. and it doesn't happen if you and I don't don't talk like this. Um talking is is the way through i mean i'm i love also sharing knowledge i love learning and i love other people learning um i'm i'm working mentoring someone else at the moment she's a lady who was i think 53 at diagnosis and uh she's having she started out i started chatting with her maybe three months ago and she was permanently out of range Mm -hmm. i mean her average blood glucose must have been something in the 200s yeah i mean it was it was just crazy and now she's having 
days where she's almost she's in certainly 70 80 percent in range um there is still a problem with the basal she's crashing a lot at night and that's not good um and we're trying to iron that out but it's just talking about ideas and working it through and i mean as an amateur i've got no medical qualifications if i'm talking to somebody about the insulin they're taking i will be super careful super 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 careful and you know she's going to get libre too soon so she'll have an overnight alarm um, and that will give me more confidence that that nothing terrible will happen yeah. if we make some some bigger changes. But she can't get enough time with her with her doctors and nurses for them to see the changes that that she needs to make. Mm-hmm. Are you happier now than you were in the oh, past? Oh God, yeah, you are. Oh, unbelievably, unbelievably. Mm-hmm. I mean, it got to a stage just to to finish the the family story. Uh, my son uh, was was diagnosed. In fact, I was, at the moment I got that call. I was doing um, a commentary on a board game, um, a, a sort of high-level tournament, and I was halfway. They were halfway through the game. I was chatting about what they were doing on the board, etc. And then I got this call from my wife. Um, yeah, Matthew's drinking an awful lot of water. I've done a finger prick and I've washed his hands and I've done another finger prick. Then I did a finger prick with a different machine. I'll meet with the hospital. So twelve months ago, he he got diagnosed um, and. He is honeymooning beautifully at the moment, I think, still. His numbers are lovely. Right. And uh, we we rolled up at the hospital, and by that stage, I got enough education, enough confidence that I felt like I was the one educating the nurses. You know, they would come and ask me questions, and that felt very flattering. But it also felt that I'm I'm on top of this now. I'm in charge of diabetes because I've put the, the hard miles in of, of reading the books and you know, reading bright spots and landmines, reading sugar surfing, finding and, and getting over the depression as well, which was was huge. Yeah. Because once I felt in control, that kind of melted away. Huh. Bob, you're, you're a diabetes, was, you're a diabetes super spreader. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's definitely there's definitely some sort of uh, connection. Um, I was diagnosed at 13 years and I think mm, 11 months. Um, Izzy was 13 years and 10 months, and Matthew was 13 years and nine months. And I think that's just because we were a bit more astute to seeing the signs with, with the kids right, right. than how, when I was first diagnosed. How about in your family before you? Anybody else? Uh, nope, nope. I had a grandfather with type 2, but that was as close as we get. Nobody thyroid? Um, no, no thyroid. Uh, I have a cousin with really serious arthritis, um, which apparently has some autoimmune connection. Yeah. Um, but there's no particular family history of, of type 1 before before me. Wow, look at that. And now, did you get all your kids, or do you have more kids? Uh, it's just a, just the two, just okay. the two kids. So I've got the full set. Yeah, um, I've got one of each. And I I, I said to the consultant, um, I saw her one evening after Matt was diagnosed. Oh, I brought you another one, <laughs> and uh, she she seemed less excited about that than me, which I was disappointed by. Do you have those sandwich um, cards in in England where you go into a shop and you buy ten, and they punch it one time, and once you get to 10, you get <laughs> yeah, a yeah, free sandwich, yeah, loyalty card, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, so it, it, I do know the team, the pediatric team at our local hospital pretty well. Um, um, they're, they're fairly conventional. Um, I mean, they're they're good doctors, um, but they're a little bit, little bit conventional. And um, you know, Libre, uh, the medics who who've been doing this job, their, their jobs have done those for twenty years or something, and now having to relearn everything. Because kind of all the stuff before Dexcom and, and Libra just doesn't matter. Right. 
Well, what you know, what, it, it just isn't important. What happens to the what? What's happening to those doctors is the same thing that happened to those diabetics back then, right? You were brought up in one generation of how to do it, and then there was a switchover, and some people were able to traverse that, and some people got left behind. And now the yeah. same thing's happening to doctors. The CGM technology is obviously, uh, it obviously elevates your ability to manage diabetes tenfold. If you know, it's got to be more. Really. Oh, it's, you know, it's, yeah, it, it's it's night and day. Right. I mean, it, it's just a, a different way of life, and it means I use uh, Libre with a with a meow meow, so it talks to my watch. And I can I can just look at it and and say okay I'm five point two right now that's pretty good. Um, the nice healthy lunch I had today is is settled nicely with the insulin, and and the Libre was just a complete life changer. And it was recommended to me by a mate of mine who's an orthopedic surgeon who said I've seen these things and they look really good. You should get one of those. And and I was still at the stage of no 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 don't talk to me about diabetes. You know I'm I'm managing fine. Leave me alone. And it was, I think we had that conversation a little before Busy's diagnosis. And and I got hold of, of Libre probably maybe six, eight months. I had to pay for it at that stage. Mm. But it was just so good. Tell me. I was like, I will stop the mortgage payments. I will stop the pension payments. Whatever it is, Libre is the thing that my family needs to be spending money on for me and, and for the kids. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that when someone showed you that technology and you didn't want to? was that real anger like how does that feel uh, well it, it, it anger's the wrong word it was more like i'm i'm on top of diabetes don't you be telling me don't you be telling me how to to manage things better mm-hmm. um first of all you're the wrong kind of doctor um and and secondly even if you were a doctor my hba1c's are okay you know i've consistently been told that since 1990 um don't you be introducing things that are going to tell me that i've i've wasted 20 years of my life doing the wrong thing that's it right but that's it right there right you it's the time lost and you can't get it back mm. and so you don't want to know that the time wasn't used as well as it could have been because that's a crushing feeling but it didn't end up crushing you right it liberated you oh oh yeah it was yeah. i mean once i got into it it was absolutely liberating and it, it, it as i say it's night and day night and day to have that information on hand all the time we're having this chat i'm telling you i'm i'm 5.2 which is 91 92 ish um and and that is something i can tell you by just by looking at my wrist yeah you know i'm not getting the i'm not uh changing my lancet like all good boys and girls do all the time and and then doing the finger stick and then waiting for the result and then packing all the stuff back in the little box or the bag and getting and, it, and it's a process whereas now i'm just constantly in touch with what my blood's doing you're just to the point a... where I, I can tell you the carbohydrate content of different pints of beer yeah. by what my Libra does after I've drunk the beer. You're a really um, inspirational mixture of before and, and now, um, which you don't see as often as I would like. It, it's just so hard to drag somebody from the 80s into the diabetes of the 2020s. Um, it, it, it's been a hell of a journey. I mean, it really has been for me a massive, massive journey. And also, you know, for the family as a whole, because I'm now in touch with diabetes and I I got involved working with Diabetes UK. I sit on the um, non-exec board for a thing called Daphne, which is the major provider of uh, education for adults with with type one in the UK. Um, I'm I'm really active on on quite a few Facebook groups, including the the Juicebox one. 
um, which I love because people are nice and they're understanding and they're open-minded and they they exchange ideas. And instead of saying, well, I didn't have that idea. It must be wrong. They're like, oh, that's interesting. Um, you know, Susan's on there plugging her low carb and not everyone is with the low carb thing. Mm-hmm. But she's she's courteous and polite and open-minded and helpful about it. She she presents it as a as a very positive choice rather than, well, if you don't do this, you're all going to die. <laughs> um, and it's it's a lovely space. It's a really lovely space. And I, I love exchanging ideas. I learn so much. I, I should knock on some wood and at the same time tell you that as an almost 50-year-old person, I feel silly saying this a little bit, but I am as genuinely proud of how that Facebook page operates as I am of many of almost anything else. Um, it, yeah. it is really uh, uncommon for peop- that many people to get into one space and talk so well about any kind of topic. It just, uh, especially on social media in general. So yeah, I, I'm, I don't know if how much credit I can take for how it works, but it, um, I'm just thrilled that it works the way it does. I think for me, part of your philosophy is about open-mindedness. It's about using the tools available to get to the place that you want to be. And whilst it is a a sensible, reasonable goal to get your blood glucose in normal range all the time, and that's that's definitely the ambition behind what what you promote and what you you, you teach, uh, the ideas behind that, it's not, um, well, you have to do it like this. You have to make sure that you eat, you have these vitamins or you don't eat those foods. It's all about doing what works for you. Yeah. Well, in the, and I think people really get on board with that. In the history of my life, I have not seen one dogmatic thing work out well. So <laughs> I just haven't. And, um, and this is too important for people to fight about. You, you know, like, like we don't have five years to figure out who's right. We don't have 10 years to decide which eating method. Like, you know, people make this mistake of when they, the first time they happen upon something, they believe it's the first time it's happened in the world. And because yeah. I've, you're right. And because, you know, you know what I mean? Like, you know, you know, when you meet a 23 year old, it's like, I don't think these politicians have my best interest at heart. You're like, oh, did you just figure that out? <laughs> Fascinating. You're fascinating. You're right on top of things. Finger on the pulse. Congratulations. But um, but like styles of eating, as an example, this is not a new argument just because we've renamed stuff keto. You, you know what I mean? Like the yeah. people had these arguments yeah. in the 80s about and they didn't call it low carb. They just were like, I eat a lot of meat. <laughs> like that's, you know, I don't yeah. eat bread and I eat a lot of meat. That was how somebody talked about it back then. It's not till until social media came up and the idea of branding something could lend lead you to making money with it, that people even bothered with stuff like this. But, but my point is, is that I've been around the diabetes space online long enough to watch it ebb and flow. And I, I realized that we're not growing. We're just rehashing the same conversations with different titles. And I thought, why does any of this matter? Like, why is everyone busy trying to figure out the best way to eat or the best technology to use or whatever? Just like, let's get everybody as close to good as is individually possible for them without making, um, well, without making them crazy or, or torturing them about how they, how they eat or, you know, what insulin yeah. pump they use, et cetera. But it's, it's the one size fits all concept that this works for me. So therefore it must work for you. And, um, 
if only that were true. Right. If only there was one right answer for every, everyone trying to manage their blood glucose. And of course, there isn't. I mean, at the moment, it seems to, a lot of people seem to be chatting about which basal insulin to use. And um, there's been a, a big study in the UK, which is, is out for consultation at the moment, comparing uh, the impact of different types of basal insulin. And actually, the result of that is a sort of study of studies thing. The result of that is probably going to conclude after the consultation that, that some of them work really well for some people and some of them work really well for other people. I mean, I really loved Traceba. When, by the time I was, I was finishing on MBI before I got to my pump, um, I loved Traceba. Mm. And that was by far the best for me. But then there's other people who, who do really, really well with um, lantisglargine or whatever else it is. And the idea that there's a sort of best, you know, this isn't a video game. It's not like a high school where your doctor will let you finally let you have the good insulin. You've got to experiment and, and try different stuff and right. just see what works for you. Yeah. Now, it's fascinating how somebody can say something and it doesn't have to be based in anything. And you're like, well, I heard somebody say it. Now, I, I would tell you, if Arden had to go back to MDI right now, it would be my inclination to try Traceba. But that's just based on anecdotal stories that I've heard from other people. And if yeah. if it turned out to not work well for her, I would pivot in two seconds. Like I don't sit still and let bad things happen just because somebody said, here's your insulin. Um, well, then you're getting all the, the information from people who are active on the internet. And the people who are active on the internet talking about their diabetes are also the ones who are going to talk to their doctors about different insulins because they're engaged. Yeah. And then the doctor's going to go, well, you know, well, why don't we try some of this um, Traceba stuff that we've got now? And and that may work really well for them. So that all the people who are succeeding with it are the ones who are talking on the internet about it. Whereas there may be loads of people using Lantus Glargine have been doing it for years. That's working for them who aren't on the internet, who aren't really engaged with the conversation. Right. I'm, and I, I feel I feel a little for those people because it's a big part of your life. It's 180 decisions a day. Yeah. You know, talk to other people doing this thing. It's not easy. It really isn't easy it, it, to do this day in, day out and talk to people. It's still tough, even with the Internet, for other people to find answers. Um, I will tell you for certain that even though Arden's nurse practitioner was the first one to bring up Dexcom, and I've told the story about how she she um, she started telling me about this kid in the practice who wanted to teach himself to eat M&Ms. So he literally got a Dexcom just so he could eat M&Ms. And, and then she was explaining to me how he got this flat line. And she was super excited because the kid could eat M&Ms. And I was sitting there thinking, well, if he could do it with M&Ms, like, I could do it with everything probably. Like what would stop me from doing it with other foods? Um, but still, the leap was still difficult to make until a woman who none of you probably know named Lorraine, who was just very big in like diabetes blogging a really long time ago, I heard her say Dexcom. And then I, that's when I took two and two. I was like, well, now the CDE said it. I like the idea of how she put it. And now I see Lorraine, a person who is friendly and I feel good about. She said she's trying it too. I'm going to ask about it. And, the, and she's the yeah. same person who brought up a Pedra. And I could, listen, I can go back now in my mind and tell you, I don't know if Novolog caused Arden's like drastic peaks and crashes, or if I just wasn't very good at diabetes back then and switching to a Pedra maybe partly just coincided with a time when I figured things out. But in that moment, it felt better. A Pedra, um, the, in my best estimation in Arden works more gradually there. It's not as like vicious. And so you can 
I don't know. I like it a lot. I know how to use Apedra really well. I was not good at Novolog. Having said that, if you put Arden back on Novolog right now, I don't think I'd have the same experience I had prior because I'm better at it now than I was all those years ago. Um, but anyway. well, we're all we're all we're all Fiasp, and I can tell you that Fiasp will take somewhere between ten and twenty minutes mm -hmm. to get going on me. It will hit Isabel within ten. And it will hit Matthew almost before he's drawn it up. <laughs> um, and, and you know, he just puts the needle near his leg and his blood sugar starts to go down. Um, and and that, for me, is, is one size does not fit all. The fact that it, that your doctor says, and Novo Nordisks say, this is how the insulin should work, does not mean that's how it's going to work. Right. It's how it and works. And that's not so you don't trust these guys. But, you know, you, you've got to do it yourself and look and learn. Well, yeah, well, because even that, those numbers they give you, they tested on however many people they tested on. And then these are an average, uh, you know, yeah. in, in a thousand people on average, it started working within this time frame to this time frame. It doesn't mean, like you said, it's going to be the same for you. I, I love the way Fiasp works. It seems to make Arden feel a little bruised at her spots. So we don't we haven't we tried it a couple of times and I, she's like she gets sore from it. Like she feels bruised after the pump comes off in that spot. So, all right, you know, that sucks, but I did like the way it worked. It was easier yeah. for us. Um, and I'll tell you the next person that comes out with another insulin that is supposed to work more quickly, I'm going to try that one too. And yeah, absolutely. You know, it just keep going. I, the worst thing I can imagine is complacency in a space that is moving this quickly and this positively. It just doesn't make any sense to sit still. I mean, the, the terrifying thing is that the docs are very reluctant to make decisions about treatment until they've seen studies. And, and that makes sense because they're scientists and they're relying on those studies to justify their decision making. But it's happening so fast. The change is happening so quickly that they can't keep up. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, for me, um, I don't know how excited I'm going to get about it, but the idea of a linear relationship between amount of carbohydrate and amount of insulin is obviously nonsense. Like, and yet we're all taught it, we're all using it. But I know that if I have my regular breakfast and 22 grams of carb in there, I will take 5.25 units of insulin. But if I double that amount of carb, if I wake up feeling really hungry and I double the insulin, so I'm at 10.5, then I know that I will hypo two hours later because it isn't a straight line relationship for me. So you need all that that insulin up front because of the piling on of carbs, but down the road, that leaves too much insulin in your system still when the carbs are gone. 100%. Yeah, yeah. exactly that. Right. And, and yet nobody wants to talk about finding some kind of uh, differential equation and some sort of software to put that in. Yeah, you're not going to find anybody to talk about that. Well, not when there's variability <laughs> between people to people. Like the, what 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 you what you're taught is it's an amalgam of everything they've learned about everybody that falls as close to the center as possible that won't cause too many people too many highs or too many lows. It's just it's just trying to keep you alive is not trying to keep you healthy. And that's where it becomes personal then. And it's difficult for people to, to parse out that information and see it. Like you, you have no idea how many people I speak to who don't see the correlation between different impacts of different foods. 
Like they'll just say like some mornings, I don't know, like it, it works great. And other mornings I get really high later. How come? I don't know. And then you talk to them for hours upon hours on days and texting back and forth. And then you realize like, I now know how to ask, ask the questions so I don't have to waste the time, but they don't, one day they're telling you about a fried egg they had with a half a piece of toast and a, and a cantaloupe. And the next day it's oatmeal. They don't understand. Why is it so bad one day? I counted the carbs and I put in the insulin. Same both days. It didn't work. And, but yeah. people's minds don't make that leap. And, and I don't not understand why, like it's, it takes an investigative person to sift through that. And not everybody thinks that way. And, and it's about the compromises you're prepared to make in your life. Um, we had a thing during, after the, the first lockdown in the UK finished, there was a thing called Eat Out to Help Out, where our lovely government decided, and this was quite a nice thing for the, the restaurants at the time, that they would pay the first 10, 10 pounds, about $13, of your meal, or half of the cost of the meal if it was less than 20 pounds. So whichever was the smaller. But they were just trying to fill the restaurants because they were worried that nobody would go out because it was post-COVID. And mm-hmm. we're finally through the first wave. There's definitely not going to be a second one. Well, look how that turned out. <laughs> but anyway, we, we went out. It was for 13 days in August. And we ate out every single day at different restaurants, every single day. And there were a couple of days when, when my wife and the kids went away and they, they ate out breakfast, lunch and dinner. And, of course, when you go out to new restaurants, new places, places that haven't been open for four months because of lockdown, you're trying new foods. And, and I love challenging myself to, to get them right. You know, I don't, I don't go into meltdown. If I, if I hit 200, I do insulin. That's what it's for. Yeah. And, and I love trying to get ahead of the meal and to work out, actually, I know there's a load of fat in this, but there's a load of rice in it as well, or maybe pizza. I mean, people talk about pizza like pizza's one thing. And the difference between um, a frozen pizza that you might eat at home and then the really nice Italian restaurant down the road and the big chain pizza restaurant, those pizzas are all different. They all work differently for me. Yeah. They might it, as well be mastering those. They might as well be three different foods. You calling them all pizza is like calling diabetes in 1985 the same as diabetes in 2020. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I, I love the tools. You know, they're, they're great. And I'm, I, I, I believe in what I, I call diapositivity. And, and there is no point sitting around feeling sorry for yourself about diabetes. A lot of people find it hard. And, and hard things are often unwelcome. But anybody who tries to do a, a poor you, you know, when I talk about, about the kids and, and they're in the team with me, um, I, like, don't you dare pity my children. Do not dare. They are growing up in a reasonably affluent household in one of the most comfortable countries on the planet um, with internet in every room. You know, they are, uh, they may have to worry about the planet in a few years' time, but they are basically the luckiest generation ever born. And they've got to do a couple of injections before, before they eat. You know, that's, that's, do not pity them. Mm-hmm. Um, diabetes makes them stronger, tougher, more forward thinking. It, it, it pre- uh, teaches them to prepare for things yeah. um, and, and teaches them self-management, all of that stuff. And I, I remember when I was at school, I used to have to go and do my injections uh, in the evenings because I, I had dinner at school with an evening. And um, there was a teacher there who saw me doing that once and she gave me this sort of sad smile. And that made me so angry. Yeah, That made me furious. Well, struggle's good. 
might not yes. be it might not be preferable to get it through your health, but it's how you got it, and there's a lot to be made of it. So yeah. that's it. You get a you know you get hardened under fire, right? Isn't that what they say? Uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I I think diabetes is science; it's reality. Um, I, I know that people sometimes don't understand, but the answer to that is improve your understanding. You know, and 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 don't spend time going. Oh, this disease is terrible. And and the people who make me furious are the people who say they don't want to have kids in case they get diabetes. You know, you I know, ask there's, people there's... that question a lot just because I'm interested to hear the answers, and I've got such varied answers over the years. I don't know that I've ever. I I understand that you wouldn't want to hear somebody say it, and I understand when somebody says it too. Like I, like it feels like they're so overwhelmed they just can't imagine it again and there's people who put it on themselves like they they feel like they gave it to somebody which is of course <sighs> it's silly yeah. and, and and silly and understandable at the same time like i understand you feel that way and of course that's not how anything works like you you don't walk around being like oh my god i gave my kid brown eyes i wish they were blue this is my fault <laughs> like nobody feels that you know like it's yeah. the emotion gets twisted up with the the logic a little bit um but it's it's about but looking at, at, at diabetes for, for what it can be, and it, it teaches you all kinds of things about nutrition. Um, Izzy did uh, an exam at sixteen, um, GCSE, which they they all do. Um, she they the grades go from one to nine, and nine is supposed to be like one in a thousand kids will get a grade that high. Um, she walked in and scored a nine in the food and nutrition exam, food tech, whatever they call it. Yeah. Um, she just got a nine because she walked in there with so much knowledge about food before she started. Right. And, you know, that's, that's just a bonus from diabetes. And I, I, I self-pity is, I, I understand how difficult people find. I really do follow how hard some people find it. And, and I think particularly for parents, you know, their kid has not turned out to be having the childhood that they were hoping for. Right. But don't, don't be, let's not be all sad about that. You know, they're, they're still having a childhood. They're still enjoying it. 150 years ago, they wouldn't have been. And in fact, 30 years ago, they would have had really bad management and they'd be hypoing all the time. Yeah. And that's not where we are now. Oh, no. Yeah. We like to and, say that, uh, uh, you know, back in 1920, you would have died if you were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. There was no insulin, but you were diagnosed in 1985 and it wasn't great for you either. It, it's only become kind of what it is, I'd have to say, in the last decade because of glucose sensing because of cgm like it, yeah it, yeah this is the advance right here like you're living in the golden age of of having type 1 diabetes if that's a thing um it really i mean that's how i see it as well hey can i ask you a question because yeah. there are a couple of things that you've said that i have to imagine that i understand and one of them is that they might have trouble with the plumbing are you saying the sewer systems in england are getting old is that was that your inference, or does your house just um, need new pipes? Did I you did said, I say that? You said I think the context which I said that. Yeah, you 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 said that. Um, you, your kids live in the greatest in one of the greatest countries in the world. They don't have a lot to worry about, but they might have to worry about the the plumbing. Oh, the planet, not the plumbing. Oh, the, the planet. planet. Oh, thank God, I was like planet. Yeah, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was yeah, like, no, no, not the plumbing. I thought the is plumbing. The England, plumbing is fine in this house. Is England filling up with shit, and I don't understand what's happening? Like, like, <laughs> the planet. No, no, no. It was, it was the planet. <laughs> thank um, God. It's, I mean, it's the thing that um, I mean. I, I travel in the states quite a lot. We really enjoy um, 
life over there generally. And I think that the time will come in a few years where I'll be spending a lot more time there. Okay. And it, the, the curious thing is that you describe something called a British accent. Right. And I don't know what that is. <laughs> it's how you talk. There isn't a British accent. <laughs> yeah, I know I know that, but I don't talk anything like somebody from Liverpool or somebody from London, let alone anyone from Scotland or Wales. And and they're all places in Britain. And you know, you get really, really interesting accents like up in, in Newcastle. And and I think what you you guys often mean when you say British is somebody who speaks very much like this as if they've recently been released from Downton Abbey. <laughs> and and that's not how we talk. You know, you do meet those people, but they're few and far between. There was someone on once who I said privately afterwards, I said that I thought she sounded like Adele, and I think she was insulted by that, but I couldn't tell why. So, oh, well, there, there is a great quote that no Englishman can open his mouth without another Englishman hating it. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and the way we speak conveys a lot of information to people. Anybody who knows the northwest of England, where I grew up in in Blackpool, which is like a little seaside town, a, a bit like sort of Atlantic City, mm-hmm. um, and there is a there's two types of accent in that part of the world. There's my accent, which is a broad, fairly gentle northwestern Lancashire accent, but it rises at the end, and that wasn't something that came with Australian soap operas. People from my part of the world have always spoken with their sentences rising a little bit towards the end. And then there's a really broad, like Lancashire accent that goes like this with quite flat vowels and all that sort of thing. And and you can tell what kind of school people went to as to whether they've got an accent like mine or whether they've got the broad Lancashire. And it's um, in, in where I live, there are maybe four or five towns around the north of Manchester no more than five or ten miles apart. And I can I can tell with a fair degree of accuracy which one someone was born in. Because of the way that the accent changes just from one town to another. Okay. Uh, so, um, so that, of course, you know, if you sound like you're from Burnley and you're walking around Blackburn, which is the, the rival town five miles away, everybody with a Burnley accent will not be popular in Blackburn. So okay. that's the, and there's also the class thing as well. Yeah, I backpedaled um, very quickly. I was like, I found it delightful. But um, she <laughs> she didn't like that too much, I don't think. I forget who it was now. <laughs> well, um, Adele is, is a real East End lass. Okay. Um, she's she's a proper. I I was lucky enough to see her at Glastonbury, and and she sang to one hundred and twenty thousand people, and it was like every single one of them she was going to go and have a gin and tonic with after the gig. It felt you know, like she that. had the whole crowd in the palm of her hand. I've seen her live as well, and uh, it did feel like that a little bit. Like, oh my god, there, there's that person. I wish I knew personally. She's standing right there. Yeah. She has that feeling about. Yeah, her. yeah, and, and she's she's just genuinely a lovely human being, but she is a real East End girl. And from a, a, a pretty sort of working class background. I see. And English people get very offended. Not not that they think the other classes are worse. It's just, no, no, my identity is this class. You must you must put me in that. Unless you're middle class, in which case all the time you're either uh, pretending that you're upper class or working class, depending on who you win. It's it's very complicated. <laughs> um, it sounds it sounds uh, it sounds more complicated than than diabetes. <laughs> <laughs> uh it's yeah but but less significant obviously. yeah well in the, and the, i guess it doesn't make you pass out unless you try to drink and keep up with people you can't drink with i guess then maybe it could uh yeah, yeah. i mean uh drinking is is a real english thing um it is a popular sport over here but <laughs> it, interestingly the the america seems to be divided into people who drink and people who don't drink and the guys who drink really drink in america you know if you were to order a whiskey in a bar in the states you get like half a pint of stuff Whereas over here, it's a, it's a, a generous thimbleful right. when you order a whiskey in a bar. 
Um, but, but then everybody, well, no, not everybody by any means drinks, but but most people will enjoy a beer or or whatever. It's it's. And I remember going to um, there was one chain restaurant in the states we were at, and they they didn't serve alcohol, and I was genuinely appalled. <laughs> How can you have a restaurant without beer? That makes no sense. Um, but the, the the drinking culture is is very different over here. Yeah, no kidding. Well, I really appreciate you doing this and reaching out and wanting to share your story. And I mean, it's fascinating that you have this like long tale of experience, and then you're also the parent of kids with diabetes too. Like you're, you really have all, there was a lot of wealth in what you were saying. So I appreciate you taking the time to record it with me. Yeah, that's really kind. That's really kind. And and it's a privilege to be on. I mean, um, you are at the forefront of all of this. Um, And there are a couple of people who are heroes for me with diabetes. And I've had a couple of amazing nurses. And I think what Professor Partha Carr is doing for diabetes in, in the UK is phenomenal. Um, he is absolutely there fighting for us to get everything we need. Um, and the stuff that you've been doing for us is, is brilliant as well. So I'm, I'm very grateful. That's, that's incredibly kind. I appreciate you saying that. I'm going to stop now because this is where I get weird and sappy. So we'll just put <laughs> A huge thank you to one of today's sponsors, Gvoke Glucagon. Find out more about Gvoke Hypopen at gvokeglucagon.com forward slash juice box. You spell that G-V-O-K-E-G-L-U-C-A-G-O-N dot com forward slash juice box. And I'm not kidding. This is the last chance to get your tickets for Dancing for Diabetes. Are you in the Orlando area? Touched by type1.org. Click on the programs tab. Tick on dance. Tick on. Click on dancing. Click on. Let's start over. Touched by type1.org. Click on the programs tab. I'm so sorry. Click on the programs tab. Click on. My brain. Go to touchbytype1.org. Click on the Programs tab, click on Dancing for Diabetes, and then get your tickets. I'm so sorry. I I don't know what happened there. My brain hurts now. Please don't let my ability to not remember what I wanted to say reflect on how you feel about Touched by Type 1. Touchedbytype1.org. They're also on Facebook and Instagram, and they're wonderful supporters of the Juicebox podcast. You're going to have a great time at Dancing for Diabetes. Hey, if you're a new listener and you're looking for the Pro Tip series, They're at juiceboxpodcast.com. You just click the link at the top that says Diabetes Pro Tip. There's a whole list of them there. You'll also see the Defining Diabetes series there. As a matter of fact, the website is pretty great. I can go to it for a second and tell you more about it. You would think I could do it off the top of my head, but after what we just heard about the Dancing for Diabetes thing, better if I pull it up and show it to you. When you first bring it up, there's links all across the top. Episodes, pro tips, juice box docs, best anchor, and... Oh boy, here we go. Juice box docs, best endocrinologists. Uh, those are doctors sent in from all over the world by listeners just like you. There's an A1C and blood glucose calculator. Translates. Um, it's great. Really, you should just check it out. Uh, there's a link to the private Facebook group there. Knowing the signs of type 1 diabetes, merchandise, there's everything there. That's not the point. Then you scroll down. There's different ways to listen. There's just links for like Pandora or 
Android, Amazon Alexa, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Amazon Music. Any way you want to listen, you click right there. Then a little lower, recent episodes of the podcast. You can click on them. And I don't say this enough, but like here's one, episode 573. You click on it. It's called Adoption and Diabetes. has a short little you know blurb. Gives you some links to listen. You can listen right there on the web if you want. And there's another clicky clicky at the bottom says click for episode transcripts. You can actually read a transcript of every episode on their pages that are available at juiceboxpodcast.com. We scroll a little farther. It's all the diabetes pro tips are listed there. The great sponsors, Dexcom, Contour Next One, Omnipod, T1D Exchange, Gvoke, Hypopen, Touch by Type One. That's there. Then you go down, there's some articles on the blog. If you like to read, do people still read? If they do, that's there. Um, Defining Diabetes series, everything from understanding crush it and catch it, which is a phrase we use in the podcast, to C-peptide, hydration, all the tools that you use every day managing diabetes, described to you by me and Jenny Smith very briefly, I think entertainingly, and um, helpfully. There's a lot of fillies and LYs in those words. Go down a little farther, there's diabetes, the Diabetes Variables series, little variables that you're going to run into while you're managing type 1 and how to understand them, sleep, pump site placement, bad sites, growth hormone, a whole bunch of stuff there. Then we get down to the After Dark series. Oh, so much goodness there. Eating disorders, diabetes complications, divorce, bipolar disorder, uh, geez, heroin addiction, bulimia using psychedelics with type one, uh, sex, drugs, booze. It's all there. Type one diabetes and all the things that nobody else talks about. If you keep scrolling, you're going to come to algorithm pumping, which are episodes all about looping and other algorithm based pumps, uh, like the mini med 670 G and the control IQ. There'll be more coming soon about Omnipod five and what other, and what other, and whatever, oh boy, and whatever other algorithms come to be. You scroll down more, some of the more popular diabetes blog posts there, how I got to be bold, um, how to bolus, how I bolus for Chinese takeout. It's a breakdown. There's a breakdown there of uh, how I bolus for a, a high carb breakfast. A, it's just, it's helpful. And then the How We Eat series, how do people eat? Intermittent fasting, flexitarian, keto, FODMAP, Bernstein, Low-carb, gluten-free, plant-based, carnivore, vegan. It's all there. People have come on and talked about the different ways they eat. That's everything that's on the first page of juiceboxpodcast.com. Are you kidding me? You see how much effort I put into that? Why don't you go look at it? All right, guys, I'm so tired now from talking like that. I got to go.